Hey, it's Erica. I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to Global News What Happened To ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's a symbol of unhappiness, rebirth, foreboding, determination, replenishing, and a pause for introspection. From the opening words of Geoffrey Chaucer's The Canterbury Tales onwards, English poets and writers have often been inspired by it. Rain. It plays a vital role in maintaining life on this planet. Nothing on Earth would survive without it. But... What if I told you that some 30-plus years ago, rain became a huge issue in North America, and there were concerns that it was, in fact, toxic? It became one of the biggest environmental and political issues of the time. Acid rain. Canada and the U.S. have known about its lethal impact on our environment for the past 15 years. Overwhelming evidence is that acid rain is caused by sulfates. About 67% of it are caused by utilities, and probably about 20% or 25% of them from our smokestack industry. So it is a serious problem. I'm journalist Erica Vella. In this episode, we revisit an environmental crisis that quickly mobilized people, industry, and government to try and solve it. Where did it come from? And was it ever fixed? This is Global News What Happened to acid rain. If you were born in the 80s or before, you'll remember the term acid rain. But if you're unfamiliar with it, it might conjure up ideas of a substance falling from the sky that could burn through your umbrella, clothing, or even your skin, marking the end of the world. Okay, that might be a little dramatic, I know. Acid rain wasn't necessarily harmful to people, but more so the environment. Mike Rennie is an associate professor at Lakehead University and Canada Research Chair in Freshwater Ecology and Fisheries. He also works as a research fellow at the IISD Experimental Lakes area, and he explained how acid rain forms. The way acid rain is generated is... When we, when we burn things like coal and fossil fuels, that releases a lot of sulfur dioxide and nitrous oxides into the air. And then when those oxides get up in the atmosphere, they react with water. And when they react with water, uh, they, form, they form acids, right? So sulfuric acid on the one hand and uh, nitric acid on the other. It's not like we're it's raining sulfuric acid on us and we're like, oh my God, we're all going to die. It's, it's, more, it's more in very small quantities, but those quantities are small enough that when they hit lakes on a particular type of landscape, that it actually will reduce the pH in those lakes uh, quite a bit. When it fell on you, you would never be able to tell the difference between normal rain 
and acid rain. But in the 60s and 70s, it had devastated certain environments. You couldn't really see it, but when it ended up in our lakes, it inevitably changed the composition of the water. Like I mentioned earlier, Mike works with the IISD Experimental Lakes Area. It's a freshwater research facility, a natural lab made up of 58 small lakes in northwestern Ontario that are used for research and experimental purposes only. It was founded back in 1968 by David Schindler, a world-renowned aquatic scientist. The ELA continues to research major environmental issues like the effects of microplastics, climate change, and most recently, it has been looking at the impacts of antidepressants on fresh water. It's most famous for researching the causes of excessive algal blooms in lakes. Mike says in the past, there had been other experiments done in labs that looked at water acidity and its effects on lake trout. He said in these labs, lake trout were placed in a tank and tested as the water's acidity was gradually increased. The trout swims around happily. It, uh, it doesn't die. It eats. Uh, it, you know, generally seems to be quite, quite content in being in that environment. The ELA wanted to look into this further to see the impacts of the whole aquatic ecosystem. They began to change the pH level in one of their experimental lakes. So neutral pH is is about 7, okay? So that's sort of the middle of the scale. What we found is that certain organisms actually started to die off once we got below that pH 6 threshold and got closer into the 5s. high five values like 5.9, 5.8, that's where things started to die off and where we started to see impacts on the, on the whole ecosystem. Mike said researchers with the ELA found that when the water became more acidic, it didn't directly affect fish, but it affected smaller organisms, which created this chain reaction. It's the things that they eat that are affected. So what we found with that experiment was that When you get down to around pH 5.9, then these little organisms, uh, freshwater shrimp or Mysis diluviana, they die off. And they're a really important food source for lake trout. And then fathead minnows die off when you get a little bit lower in the pH. And then slimy sculpin die off, which is a little lower in the pH. And these are all really important prey items for lake trout. And so what we were able to demonstrate with the experiment that we did out at ELA was that it's not that it's necessarily affecting this sport fish that we're really interested in and everyone wants to go fishing for. What was really sensitive to that declining pH was all the things that lake trout like to eat. And so what we found was that fish started starving and uh, the populations really tanked once we got down to that pH 5 level. This is what was happening in Ontario in the 60s and 70s to lakes located primarily on the Canadian Shield. So if you're in the, in the middle of the prairies or in southern Ontario, there's a lot of limestone in the ground. And that limestone has a real buffering capacity for those lakes, right? So it'll absorb a lot of those, those hydrogen ions from the acid that comes down in the precipitation. And so you don't really see an effect in those kinds of, in those kinds of systems. Where you do see it, though is on the Canadian Shield. So this is lakes that are in sort of anything above sort of Aurelia or Lake Simcoe in Ontario, where these lakes are essentially just sitting on on granite bedrock because there's almost no buffering capacity there, right? We don't have a lot of sedimentary rock 
and they're just sort of bathtubs of water. And so they're much more sensitive to the chemistry of the rain that falls down in them. And it's those kinds of lakes where we saw big changes in, in the pH of over time in terms of this whole acid rain issue. I'm going to jump in here for a moment. It's important to know that it wasn't just lakes that were being impacted by acid rain. John Gunn is a professor and Canada Research Chair in the Stressed Aquatic Systems at Laurentian University. Sudbury is famous in the world for its nickel mines. But Gunn said that nickel production created a lot of pollution. We had an ore body on Earth, uh, rich in nickel and copper and all kinds of elements, but also 40% of it was sulfur. So when when you burn that ore to release the uh, copper and nickel, the uh, sulfur is driven off into the atmosphere as a waste product, and that's the sulfur that uh, then leads to acid rain. And because this was such a big industry here, and we had uh, such enormous smelters operating here to do the processing of copper and nickel. We became uh, notorious in the world as being the largest source of uh, sulfur-generating acid rain in the world. He said the pollution affected Sudbury immensely. The sulfur fumes were rolling out over the landscape, killing vegetation directly or combining with water and moisture to create acid and killing it further. All of the vegetation, all of the greenery within 30 kilometers of the smelter was was destroyed. And uh, rain and, so, and winter's erosion came on and washed away all the unprotected soil. And Sudbury was reduced to uh, blackened rocks and even at the when we were down to bedrock, having lost a meter of soil, the acid still burnt the rock. Uh, you could see the pitting of pure acid. So how did something that appeared so dire change? With the help of a team of people, which included government, scientists, and one man, Michael Purley, who back in the 1960s didn't even know what acid rain was. Purley is a true outdoorsman. When he was a kid, the great wild north was a way of life for him. I think like many Canadians, I've always been either when I was younger at camp or at cottages, in canoes, on the water, in the water, fishing. That's always been part of my life. It's always been something I look forward to every year. As Michael got older, he started camping and portaging during the summers. And there's one trip from his early 20s that he recalls vividly. He was on a hike with friends about four hours north of Toronto in Killarney Provincial Park. And he came across something striking. We came across a couple of those uh, bowl-shaped lakes, and uh, they were remarkably clear. Uh, You could see, uh, even at uh, 15, 20, 25 feet deep, you could see the bottom. There was nothing in the water. There were no fish. There were no snakes. Uh, There was nothing, no minnows. It was just a clear blue. It looked like a swimming pool. 
And I was really struck by this. Uh, it was it was beautiful, but it was eerie and uh, unusual, very unusual. Michael said he was used to seeing lakes teeming with wildlife, and they were often dark from rich flora and fauna living below the water's surface. But that crystal clear lake made him uneasy, and he didn't know why. That was Michael's first introduction to acid rain. But he didn't know it yet. In 1978, Michael worked at CELA, the Canadian Environmental Law Association. It's a nonprofit specialized legal aid clinic that helps people who have been harmed by pollution. It also works on changing policy to prevent pollution. At the time, Michael had been working as a fundraiser for CELA, but he was helping Ross Howard, a prominent Canadian environmental journalist, with a book about environmental contamination. Michael says the project led him to another book, a book on acid rain. At that point, Michael said he had a basic understanding of what acid rain was, but he certainly wasn't an expert. It didn't really register with me all that dramatically. (laughs) It sounded like a a pretty um, unusual phenomenon, not widespread. Um, It was not being talked about or written about very much at all. As it turned out, there was already a big problem in Scandinavia with Asabrain, which was being documented and talked about there uh, in the press and uh, legislatively and otherwise. But here, it was still very much below the radar. Michael said because acid rain wasn't posing a significant risk to human health, it wasn't getting much widespread attention. When there's a human health impact from an environmental issue, that's often when the public starts paying serious attention and legislators start paying serious attention. But at that point, again, you know, early 70s, there was no real evidence of that kind of uh, impact at all. It was certainly life or death for many aquatic species, as it turned out, and and uh, lakes and forests and so on. I had an interest in it at a sort of visceral level because it was happening in places that I was familiar with and, and loved, you know, lakes and canoeing rivers and so on. Even though acid rain affected the places he loved— Michael said he still felt a little removed from the issue. That is until November 1979, when Michael Purley attended the first ever action seminar on acid precipitation in Toronto. It was really quite something. The hotel was overflowing, and uh, there were a number of very uh, significant and important uh, folks there. John Fraser, Canada's environment minister, who was very, had become concerned about the issue. Uh, the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency administrator, Doug Kossel, was there. Uh, this was under a Democratic administration, so he was uh, very much concerned about the issue and, and felt it was important enough to come. There were uh, a number of key players from a large U.S. environmental groups as well as Canadian groups, many scientists, many naturalists, people who were concerned about acid rain's impact on the natural environment in different ways, not just aquatic, but plants and forests and so on. So 
when you added all these people up, gosh, we had uh, just an overflowing crowd. And it was, uh, that was part of the story of the weekend is how this issue had suddenly burst on the scene. He said only 200 people had been expected, but instead, it's estimated that over 800 people showed up. And in 1979, seeing hundreds of people gather for one environmental cause was really rare. Environmental issues were not topics that were widely discussed or covered, but now people were finally paying attention to acid rain. And for Michael, the seminar marked a turning point for him as well. That was when, as sometimes happens in conference settings, where you get all the experts, all the top people involved in the issue, and they are suddenly all in one place, and uh, you get presentation after presentation of uh, diverse scientific information. There was speculation at that conference, for example, about the possibility of acidification of well water systems with human health impacts. There was information, uh, some of it speculative, but some of it uh, beginning uh, to come out of the research community on the impact on forests. So it wasn't just some lakes in northern Ontario that were being impacted. Following the seminar, Michael met with some organizers. I remember we had a a meeting at a, a hotel in Toronto several of us, and we were all still pretty shell-shocked from the event in a positive way. And uh, we got together and said, how can we determine, what's the best way to determine what our best contribution can be to solving this problem? Where will we get resources to underwrite an effort and, and some related issues? While he knew there were certain industries in Canada that had contributed to the acid rain crisis, he knew this wasn't an issue unique to our country. Canada's neighbor to the south, particularly industry in the Ohio River Valley, was a big contributor to acid rain. To find a solution, the U.S. needed to be involved, so he teamed up with Adele Hurley, an environmental researcher and advocate. Together, With seminar organizers and other key environmental and business groups, they created the Canadian Coalition on Acid Rain. Adele worked to shed light on the issue in the U.S. by engaging with policymakers and environmental NGOs in Washington, and Michael focused in on Canada. Michael said in Canada, mining companies like Inco and Falcon Bridge were causing massive amounts of emissions. Inco was the big challenge for us. And then uh, we also had Ontario Hydro's coal-fired power plants that contributed to the problem. So uh, we had some local sources. Inco even had a chimney called the Superstack that was built in the early 70s. It was almost 400 meters high, and it became an infamous symbol of air pollution in Sudbury and beyond. But Michael said some of the biggest contributors came from the U.S. The main source, by far and away, from the U.S. were the coal-fired power plants that were located in the Ohio River Valley. And because of the uh, prevailing winds and the meteorology in the northeastern quadrant of North America, 
uh, and there were many of these plants. I don't think I have a recollection of an exact number, but 50 certainly uh, is not an exaggeration. And these plants were scattered up and down the Ohio River Valley and adjoining areas. And they had very little control on them, if any, at the time we're talking about in the uh, early 80s. So the prevailing winds just brought the emissions up uh, in a northeasterly direction. And uh, the first area they hit was southern Ontario. And we had 48,000 lakes in southern Ontario that uh, many of which were had very low natural alkalinity, like very low what we call buffering capacity. And uh, that's where most of eastern, on, uh, southern and southeastern uh, Ontario's impact came from. Early on, he says there was a bit of a blame game happening between the U.S. and Canada. I remember when I was in one trip to Washington, and uh, I met uh, brief, very briefly the chairman of the House Energy and Commerce Committee in the House of Representatives, which was the committee that had jurisdiction over uh, the Environmental Protection Agency and clean air and clean water legislation. And its chair was John Dingell, who was a very powerful uh, congressman from Michigan. And he was a big fan and a protector of the auto industry. So he was not somebody who was sympathetic to us uh, and to uh, to the acid rain issue, broadly speaking. And I remember I, I went up to him in a corridor and tried to tell him a little bit about the issue. And he, uh, as he used to do, uh, he, he was quite a tall guy and he put his arm around my shoulders and said, now, uh, Mr. Purley, I think what you should do is go back home and, and, uh, Get that, uh, get that super, super smokestack at Inco under control. And uh, that's the best thing you can do is, is sort of clean up your own act at home. <laughs> that was, now, uh, that was uh, a, bit, a bit of politics, but he was probably fairly serious about that because he had been briefed about the super, super smokestack in uh, Ontario, and it was causing some trouble in the Adirondacks. Its emissions were causing trouble. And uh, so he wasn't having any of the Canadian lobbying effort. Stopping acid rain in Canada wasn't going to be an easy task. All levels of government would have to be aligned and willing to fix the issue. It was going to require companies to innovate, which in turn would cost a lot of money. Michael says point source pollution is something that was regulated by the province. There is one exception to that, vehicle emission standards. Those are nationally regulated. But vehicle emissions, in the case of acid rain, had contributed only really small amounts. Like I mentioned earlier, it was large smelters and coal-fired plants that were the major cause of acid rain. And Michael said that was something that provinces would need to take care of. It was very important that we lean on the uh, Ontario provincial government, the Quebec provincial government, and then in terms of vehicle emissions, which were a contributor, uh, they weren't they weren't really uh, of the same, I would say, magnitude as the point sources, the individual sources of power plants and smelters were to the acid rain problem, but they contributed. 
And so we had to lean on the federal government in Canada to get tougher vehicle emission standards as well. So, uh, and then there was the matter of the Canadian government recognizing the nature of the problem and how much uh, U.S. action was essential to solving the problem in Canada. Now that they knew what was causing the problem and the companies that were responsible, what was actually done to fix it? The Ontario government put in place strict regulations on companies like Inco that would essentially force them to reduce emissions by 50%. That looked like uh, good government. They started to to, uh, uh, develop firmer and firmer regulations uh, to companies and uh, started to use the stick instead of the carrot to say, we'll give you a fixed amount of time to reach a fixed limit and uh, we're not going to interfere on how you do it, but you just have to do it or we'll shut you down. And uh, that created a, a wonderful period of innovation. But there was quite a bit of pushback from industry when those new regulations were announced. It's something that Michael Purley remembers clearly. Inco particularly was very resistant. Uh, we actually met with the president of Inco at one point, And um, <clears throat> this was uh, a chap named Walter Kurluk, who really controlled the company uh, 100%. And he wasn't having any of this. He didn't. Uh, he said, "You give me the money, basically, to uh, solve this problem, and I'd be glad to do it for you." But uh, until that happens, we're not, and I'm not sure that this problem is as serious as you think it is. So that was uh, that was our first clue, <laughs> if we needed that, that Inco was going to be really tough to get done. In the mid-80s, Brian Mulroney was Canada's prime minister, and he was vocal about his concerns with acid rain. Acid rain is tough to persuade people to think of future generations and to protect what we have most precious to pass on, namely our heritage and our environment, is a difficult task. People want to worry only about tomorrow morning, not about the tomorrow mornings of the 21st century. And we have to, as best we can, cause the focus to go to the environment. Michael Purley says to help companies meet new emissions regulations, the federal government promised funding. This was money to install the kind of technology that would dramatically reduce the emissions. And in Canada, Mr. Mulroney's federal government provided the funding to, ha- to get the uh, smelters modernized and uh, to cut their emissions. And that was what was really important. But that was only part of the problem. Canada would now have to work with the U.S. to lessen pollution there as well. Mulroney was determined to make a deal. There will be an international treaty between Canada and the United States which will reduce and within proper time frames eliminate the scourge of acid rain. But that would prove to be a different challenge. The U.S. had the Federal Clean Air Act, which came into effect in 1963, and it had been amended every few years up until 1977. Michael says by the mid-'80s, he and Adele Hurley had both spent time lobbying Congress to amend the act to include acid rain. This was the so-called reauthorization of the U.S. Federal Clean Air Act, which should have been done in time for 1980, but was just was just ignored uh, under under the Reagan administration. 
and there were various attempts made to reauthorize it, but there was never the necessary congressional majority to pass an acceptable reauthorized act, uh, which was just simply an updating process and in this case would have added an acid rain program to the act. Michael said the Reagan administration became increasingly difficult when it came to prioritizing environmental issues like acid rain. It's something that Brian Mulroney also spoke about at the time. We always get disappointed. We are always disappointed by the failure of the American Congress and some members of the administration to understand and to appreciate the, the, the celerity with which we have to act in this vital uh, area of, our, of our, our national life. For us, it's a capital matter. And, and we're frustrated by our incapacity to persuade the Americans and the American Congress of the absolute urgency of our acting together to preserve our environment. From 1980 to 1988, Ronald Reagan was the president. And to the extent that uh, the federal U.S. government played an important role in leading on possible controls uh, and sending a message to Congress, that it was important to legislate on acid rain emissions. And Mr. Reagan did did nothing. But that would soon all change on November 9th, 1988. All right, President-elect is about to speak. We'll go to the podium. Thank you all very, very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you all. Thank you. George H.W. Bush was elected president of the United States, beating out Massachusetts Governor Michael Dukakis. And with a full heart and with great hopes, I thank all the people throughout America who have given us this great victory. Early on, Bush made it clear that the environment was going to be a priority. We can break the stalemate that has hindered progress on clean air for the past decade. With the minds, the energy, the talent assembled here, we can find a solution. One of his first priorities was to get this bilateral irritant, as well as environmental catastrophe, under control. And uh, he uh, allowed reauthorization of the act with an acid rain control program that cut basically U.S. emissions in half uh, by scheduled by 1990. And uh, similar legislation had been brought in in Ontario and Quebec by the provincial governments in 1985. And so by the time Bush came into office, uh, the time was right uh, after years of neglect under the Reagan administration for action. And it happened quite quickly. And uh, we were, of course, delighted because as uh, measurements and um, uh, monitoring have shown uh, the area of acid impact uh, in northeastern North America has dramatically shrunk. It was a step made by both the prime minister and the U.S. president. And in March 1991, it was official. Today, Prime Minister Mulroney and U.S. President George Bush signed an accord to reduce acid rain-causing emissions by 50%. With this agreement, we are guaranteeing our children that air quality will never again be taken for granted on this continent. The treaty that we signed today is testimony to the seriousness 
with which both our countries regard this critical environmental issue. According to the Parliamentary Research Branch, this bilateral agreement was built on the U.S. Clean Air Act and the Canadian Acid Rain Control Program. In it, both governments committed to a series of targets to control pollutants and reduce the emissions of sulfur dioxide and nitrogen oxides. But Michael Purley says this agreement was very much symbolic. Mr. Mulroney is remembered in the Acid Rain Chronicles more as the, the prime minister who helped formulate the something called the U.S.-Canada Acid Rain Accord. And uh, that accord, to me, is, is simply a piece of paper. What really counted in all this was domestic legislation in the U.S. and Canada. There were a number of factors that in the end led to the reduction of acid rain. The first was communication. Having people like Michael Purley, Adele Hurley, and others inform the public of the environmental crisis, lobbying for legislative change in both Canada and the U.S., and also having former Prime Minister Brian Mulroney addressing the issue on a national stage. Mulroney was even named Canada's greenest prime minister in 2006. The second was identifying the source of the problem and working with companies like Inco, Falcon Bridge, and Ontario Hydro. There was innovation, having those large companies change infrastructure that would, in the end, dramatically lower emissions. And the push from both the Canadian Prime Minister and the U.S. President to meet and create this bilateral agreement that would reinforce both countries' commitment to lowering emissions. So I had wondered, with all these changes, what sort of reductions did the U.S. and Canada see? For context, at the very height of the environmental crisis, John Gunn says Sudbury, which was one of the biggest contributors to sulfur dioxide emissions, was emitting about two and a half million tons of SO2 into the atmosphere a year. That's about, uh, that's more than all of Europe produces today. Uh, you know, a nation like, an industrial nation like Japan would produce less than a million tons. So here's one city and one industry two or three times more than that, uh, enormous amount uh, in in the day. So uh, it was a very substantial point in the, in the world, visible from satellites, the fumes coming from it. So it was a, it was a big source. With all the changes in standards, legislation, and policy, Sudbury now emits around 50,000 tons. Thousands of damaged water bodies are improving uh, very rapidly. I'm looking at them out my window right now. In front of me is a beautiful lake called Ramsey Lake in downtown Sudbury. It's the drinking water supply. It's full of fish that people and that are safe to eat. The hillside across when I started was black and now it's a lush forest. If you look at it from the satellite, the, uh, the stain on the earth is almost uh, disappearing. In Canada, SO2 emissions have decreased by 69%. In Sudbury, that number is even higher, 98%. And that super stack in the city? Well, it's no longer in use. In Sudbury, trees slowly started to come back, and lush green forests recovered after decades of damage. So how was nature healing? To answer that, I turned once again to Mike Rennie. 
You'll remember he works for the Experimental Lakes area, or the ELA. They looked at the devastation acid rain and acidic runoff had on lakes in Ontario and referenced an experiment where they lowered the pH levels of a lake to see the impact on trout. That wasn't a quick experiment. Mike said it started in the late 70s and it took about 20 years. It's not fast, <laughs> but... But the insights we gained from that experiment were really striking because it, it, it sort of showed us how this, like, the whole ecosystem is connected. And most of the really interesting impacts that I think we saw in that experiment were, were these in, what I'll call indirect effects, right? So one organism responds directly, but it's all, the, it's all of the organisms that are connected to that one that also respond in ways that we wouldn't have been able to predict in a, in a laboratory setting. Through the ELA's research, Mike said it was pretty clear to see the kind of damage acid could have on a lake. But how could it be restored? Well, it turns out there is another experiment that's underway right now looking at ways to recreate ecosystems that had existed before lakes were damaged by acidification. Mike says they are doing this by looking at the DNA of ancient organisms left in lake sediment, in particular, mysis, a kind of freshwater crustacean. Then, when we looked down, down the sediment core from Lake 223 and looked at where the mysis eDNA showed up, what we saw was that in the historical sediments, the deeper sediments, we saw mysis eDNA, we saw mysis eDNA, and then it vanished. It vanished at around 12 centimeters. And when we dated that core to figure out what date is 12 centimeters, that worked out to be 1979. <laughs> so, so we're actually, what we were able to show is that you can actually track changes in the, in the community, at least for, for these uh, freshwater shrimp, through the sediments using eDNA to determine, you know, whether or not uh, organisms like this used to be present in these lakes. And so the next step for trying to apply this uh, a method that we've developed is to go out to lakes where we know there's been impacts uh, historically from acidification, right? So around Wawa or around Sudbury, where we know that we've seen um, big changes to or big impacts to lakes from acidification, where we might not necessarily know what was in that lake beforehand, right? We might not have the data from before it was impacted by industry. And we can now start to try and apply some of these methods to, to reconstruct what that what that lake ecosystem looked like. Because oftentimes, you know, you've, you can say, okay, I've got this dead lake. It's starting to recover chemically. It can probably sustain fish or, or invertebrates now. What should go there, right? I mean, how, what, what informs that decision-making to say, what fish should we put back? Um, and so I'd like to think that we might be able to use these methods to say, well, what did the lake look like before we impacted it. And can we use that information to inform how, how we might like to make it look sort of moving forward? It's important to know that acid rain is not necessarily gone, just dramatically reduced since the crisis from 30 years ago. And it was really one of the first environmental problems that garnered the world's attention. But while it may have been one of the first, it isn't the last. The environment is still at risk, and climate change could affect our future survival. But it's not too late. At least not yet. And as Michael Purley told me, 
Acid rain has taught us that if allowed to, nature has a way of bouncing back. The environment has a way of revitalizing itself, whether it's chemical pollution, whether it's air pollution like the acid rain problem was, uh, whether it's some other form of pollution. If you remove that pollution and um, give uh, the natural environment a chance to rehabilitate itself and to regenerate, uh, it will. It has a remarkable capacity to regenerate and to revivify. And a little bit of help from us uh, in many situations can lead to that. Just Mother Nature healing herself in the absence of dangerous environmental contaminants. When political will, innovation of industry, and cooperation between countries align, the environment can start to mend, heal, and recover. Thank you for listening. Global News What Happened To is written and produced by me, Eric Avella, with producer Dila Velasquez. Our audio producer is Rob Johnson. Also, thanks goes out to Drew Hasselbeck, supervising national online journalist for Global News. Thanks to Stephanie D'Souza for editing assistance. Let us know what you thought of this episode and please share it with a friend. It will help us grow the show and bring you more incredible stories. You can also help us by giving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. You can also reach out to me personally. We're always looking for stories, so if there's a news story you want us to revisit, you can reach me on Twitter at Erica Vella or email me at erica.vella at globalnews.ca. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.